HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Time for Lunch is a new podcast from HRN for curious young eaters, where we focus on the serious questions. Aren't chickens tiny dinosaurs? We get to know our favorite foods in unexpected ways. We just like cheered like you would cheer for your classmate when they're round in second base in softball. And we just like, peach, 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 peach. Yay, thank you, peaches. Learn some new recipes and jokes. What does a boxer's mom put in his lunch? A knuckle sandwich. And load up on fun facts. Experts estimate that there are between one and 2,000 types of insects eaten around the world. So roll up your sleeves and dig in. Subscribe to Time for Lunch on your favorite podcast app so that you and your favorite young eater can catch up on the whole first season. New episodes of season two out each week. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cutting the Curd. I'm your host, Kara Warren, and today on the show, I have Matt Benham, head cheesemaker of Arethusa Farm. And for the last six years, Matt has been the head cheesemaker of Arethusa in Litchfield, Connecticut, where he and his team have been producing and aging a lineup of nine different cheeses. Today on the show, we're going to discuss his most recent accolade, the honor of becoming the recipient of the 2020 Daphne Zeppos Teaching Award. He's the eighth recipient of this, and it includes a $5,500 scholarship and a chance to travel abroad and continue his research, which we are going to discuss a little more today. Um, Matt, welcome to the show. Um, how do you feel about this? This must this seems incredible. Yeah, this has been a very, very exciting few weeks for me since I, since I found out. Um, obviously, this is something that I've been, you know, a topic that I've been excited about for, for quite some time um, and really excited to have this opportunity to uh, sort of see it through, I guess. So how do they tell you? Is it like an email? Is it a phone call? How does this go down? I, I was I was lucky enough to get a, a phone call on a on a Friday afternoon that really, really made my weekend for sure. Oh, nice. Very nice. Yeah. And um, how how long have you been thinking about this 
uh, award or, or did you apply before? Is this a first time round for you? So this was a first time application for me, but it's definitely a topic that I've been thinking about for some time. Um, and I think that, you know, it's a, obviously a topic that I've been interested about, interested in for a while. Um, but I think that it really, this idea in particular stemmed out of some, some conversations that I had um, in 2018 uh, and since then, both with folks here at Arethusa and some other small producers here in New England, um, sort of all struggling with, with better understanding this, this same very complex topic. Okay. And would you like to introduce the, uh, the topic, the subject in, in the best way you can, or I can, I can <laughs> read what they, they, they explained it to me, but I think we should let you go ahead and, and explain Sure. It. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really, my project is looking at the impact of animal feed on milk and therefore on the cheese made with that milk um, in hopes of sort of better understanding what ruminant diet will sort of lend itself to the highest expression of a, of a given cheese, understanding that that may not be precisely the same diet for every, every cheese in every context. And I think that we have sort of as an industry broadly accepted the fact that um, cheese is made, you know, from animals on a, on a diverse um, pasture diet are likely going to be the most interesting. And, and by and large, I think that's the case. But I also recognize that that is not necessarily practical for, for everyone in, um, in every farming context. And so my hope is to sort of use this travel in Europe paired with some academic literature um, and better, better synthesizing some of the, the research that's already out there to help folks better understand how they can sort of maximize the potential of their cheese, um, perhaps by, by modifying the diet of their herd or the herd that supplies their milk um, and hopefully creating the, the very best cheese possible and then using sort of an economic component to better understand the return on investment involved in making those those modifications and, and hopefully understanding from a from an economic financial standpoint whether that transition makes good economic sense for for them and their business excellent and so do you feel like now a lot of farmers have access to some information that relates to this subject or or not at all like i, I feel like farmers at least, I mean, I don't know many farmers. I am a Brooklyn girl, but um, um, they don't always have all the information and they're going on know-how from previous generations. But is there are there resources uh, to help them determine uh, these factors already or is it not available? There certainly are. And I think that a big part of my research is, is not so much in creating anything new so much as it is in synthesizing and aggregating um, a lot of a lot of research and a lot of experience that's already been done and is already out there, and so um, when we began to have conversations here at Arethusa about how we may um, alter our herd diet so as to um, benefit the the cheese, the the final product, um, what I found was that there was an immense amount of information out there, um, much of it valuable, but um, in a lot of really disparate sources. And so sort of trying to tie that together, make it more accessible to the folks that need it and trying to tease out the most sort of universally useful things from, um, from that information is, is really what I'm, I'm hoping to do. And so you mentioned that um, 
different milk uh, makes different cheese. Like, say it's all cow's milk. Or is that what you're saying? And then it, depending on what the cows eat, that determines a certain cheese recipe. Is that, I mean, I don't know if I'm, I'm mixing things up, but I just want to understand, is it so the diet would change yep. this? And, yep. and so you're researching that too a little bit is what it sounds like maybe to find the best return on investment. Well, I think that my hope is that to, to recognize that there are a lot of different factors that go into making um, the perfect milk for a given cheese and um, you know, breed being, being chief among them. Um, previous DZTA recipients have um, looked at the, the impact of, of heritage breed cattle, um, have looked at the, um, the impact of native microbes, and the microbiology of, of raw milk um, as sort of opportunities um, to create really um, impactful, distinctive cheeses. And so I think that feed is yet another, um, another component of that. And so um, one sort of place where we can look at this probably most clearly is in what we would refer to as like the fatty acid profile of the milk, which is largely determined by a ruminant's diet. Um, and so this biochemical composition of the milk um, is really what all of those awesome beneficial microbes in the cheese are acting upon as the, um, as the cheese is ripening. And so they sort of become the, the substrate, if you will, um, for the microbes to do cool things and, and produce all those distinctive flavors that we, we know and love. Okay, so a follow-up question to you. Um, a cow is, is allowed to graze on pasture, it's fresh grass. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the grass is dried from the same farm, is, is it still considered a year-round grass-fed milk? That's a great question. I believe that it um, it is in most contexts. And now to <laughs> to be clear, um, I am sort of at the very beginning of this um, uh, this research process. Um, and so I am sort of um, preliminarily prepared um, to to answer some of these technical questions. Um, I will say that there are um, currently some year some 100 percent grass fed certification schemes. Um, that have become increasingly popular in the U.S., um, but I don't know the, the specifics of, of all of those. Okay, so when we do our follow-up <laughs> episode, uh, we'll get back to those things. Um, so a curious thing then, Matt, let's kind of deep dive back into how did you get into, did you actually, a little further back, let's look at your family history. I'm curious, did you grow up with a dairy background? Was your family in farming? Uh, how did, what was your, your background to this? Yeah, so I, I don't have any family in farming. I, I did grow up in an area um, that was sort of dotted with with dairy farms in, in southern and central New Hampshire um, and, and sort of appreciate that um, from an early age as sort of part of the, the rural landscape, I guess. Um, and recognizing that, um, you know, that that's an important part of, of you know, an area that I'm, I'm very passionate about. And so I think that, um, you know, while I don't have a farming, a farming background per se, um, you know, local food and, and dairy in particular were always of interest to me. And so I actually wound up um, sort of by happenstance at Slow Foods Biennial Cheese Festival in Bra um, in 2009. So about 11 years ago now, and really sort of spent four days doing a, a deep dive into some of the great cheeses of the world um, and got hooked and um, 
thankfully it was sort of at a time when I was um, looking looking for a career path, um, and that sort of set me set me on the path that I've been on ever since. What was that cheese moment in Bra? Was it um, tasting a cheese or talking to a cheesemaker? I don't know that it was any um, single moment, though. I think that when I sort of were, had the opportunity to be immersed for you know three, four days, whatever it is, um, tasting cheeses like I had never tasted before, and meeting folks and recognizing um, that you know I was meeting a third generation producer of, of whatever, um, it was sort of the first time I think that I realized. Um, that this was sort of a world in which people immerse themselves for their entire lives and, and certainly for, for multiple generations. Um, and sort of the complexity of that world was, was really intriguing to me. Um, and I think I continue to be intrigued by um, how little I know about it. I think um, one of the things that's always what I've loved about cheese is that the more I learn about it, the more I have more to learn. Um, and that has sort of kept my interest for, for 10 years now. Excellent. And, and so then you segue to Beecher. How did you get to Beecher's then? Yeah. So I, I, having no idea how one wound up in the cheese industry, um, I found myself working behind a small now defunct shop in Brooklyn, um, called choice green. And I spent about six months there. Um, before making making the leap to Beechers, and initially when I joined the the Beechers New York team, um, I was working behind their cheese counter, and I had let them know that whenever you know whenever the opportunity came to to jump into the production side, I was I was excited to do that. And they said, "Cool, you know, it'll probably be six months or so." And um, about day day seven or eight, they said, "Hey, are you are you that guy who wants to make cheese?" And I said, "I I am, yeah." And they said, "Cool, suit up, suit up, and jump in. We need you." So, been making cheese ever since. Wow! And you didn't feel um, intimidated, or you didn't you didn't see the science as something scary. You just took to it. Um, I wouldn't say that. No, I I think that it's <laughs> it's been intimidating. You know, it's been intimidating me ever since. Um, and certainly, you know, this this project. Um, you know, intimidates me in some ways. There's, there's always a lot to learn. Um, but as I said, I think that that's part of, part of what continues to make it interesting, um, is the, uh, the opportunity to, to dive deeper and learn more. So when you graduated to Arethusa farm in Litchfield, Mm -hmm. um, that seems like a very, it was a very different than Beecher's. It was. So I think, you know, um, Beecher's is a wonderful place to sort of get your feet wet and um, learn a lot about cheese making. It was a great sort of crash course. Um, one thing that I was interested in, continue to be interested in, um, is is the maturation, the ripening of cheese. Um, and that was not something that we did much of um, on the Beecher's team. So the opportunity to move here um, to Arethusa and make a number of different cheeses of, of very differing styles um, and and sort of see them through the entire process from from milk to finished finished ripened cheese um, was was really exciting um, and continues to be a great joy also kind of circling back to your topic um, the milk oh, quality sure. could also yeah. be very different as well in the cheese making sure. process between those two i would say I mean, I think that that both um, were were fortunate to have you know high quality, very clean milk. I think the benefit of working for a, a farmstead producer 
um, like Arethusa, is that you have sort of eyes on um, on those cows um, every every day, and you sort of get to you know call up our our herdsman, our barn manager, um, and and talk over. Um, you know, what, what cows are eating and how they're being cared for um, and really dive into that in a way that I, I hadn't had an opportunity previously. And how, how large is the herd for Arethusa now? Yeah, so we're milking about 100 cows, give or take, um, at, any, at any given time. Um, and we also have, have quite a, a breeding operation. So we actually have more, you know, many more cows than, than we're milking. Um, and young Arethusa cows sort of wind up all over all over the country and all over the continent, really. Um, really, really top quality genetics for, for Holsteins and Jersey cows. Is there, I don't know if this is right or not, but is there a lab on Arethusa? Like, is there, when you're saying genetics, that makes me think of a lab. So, uh, but maybe it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's just breeding. Uh, is what we're talking about here. It is, yeah. It's it's breeding and, and being very mindful of um, how how you breed those cows so as to sort of bring out their um, their best qualities um, generation after generation. Yeah. So no no lab on site, um, but a lot of a lot of thought given to um, sort of what pairings of genetics may um, sort of bring out, say the the very best qualities of the the Jersey herd in a in a future generation. Let me see. And, and so now you make how many styles? I believe it was nine we talked about. Is that still accurate? That is accurate. Yeah. So we're making um, a, sort of a very wide variety of styles, about five hard cheeses. Um, our Arethusa blue cheese and then three soft cheeses, a small format washed rind and a couple small blue urine cheeses. Is that, in terms of production, is that overwhelming? I mean, or it must be difficult. To do. Depend, depending on the season, it can be a lot to balance. And, you know, in the coming months, we're, we sort of have to um, continue making those those hard cheeses such that we, we have them available year round. Um, but we also need to sort of ramp up soft cheese production, as, as most producers will be doing in the, you know, in the next couple months um, to ensure that we have ample, ample stock for the holiday season. So. Um, it can be a lot to a lot to juggle, but then we also get a little bit of a lull in the in the first quarter, as I think everyone in the industry does. And how do you handle um, like with the blue cheese, for example? Um, mm-hmm. Are you doing production? Is it possible to do production of blue cheese and soft ripened cheese in the same areas? I, I feel like the blue mold would somehow catch somewhere, and you'd you'd be in trouble. Um, yeah, so um, there are sort of some interesting um, microbial roots around that um but you know sort of the the primary um the primary route is that we have a a separate aging facility in an adjacent building Um, and so while all of our cheeses are produced in the same facility um, the blue cheese actually goes off site for aging um, whereas the the soft ripened cheeses remain um, at our at our main building and so as that blue mold begins to to really develop and spoilate um we're not seeing, you know, we're not seeing contact with, with the other younger cheeses. Good. Safe and sound, those soft ripened bloomy rinds. I love it. <laughs> um, okay, Matt, we're going to take a quick break. Um, sure. Listeners, this is Matt Benham from Arethusa, and we'll be right back to discuss uh, a few more things.
All right. Welcome back, everyone, to Cutting the Curd. Today on the show is Matt Benham. We're here discussing uh, his award from uh, Daphne Zephos and how excellent it is to do research on cheese and, and move the industry forward through science and academia. Um, I feel like no stri- no piece of grass will be left unturned by you, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, What sort of, I mean, what sort of research do you expect might happen? Will you be taking blades of grass and putting them under a microscope? I, I don't even know where you get to start this kind of research. Sure. Yeah. So um, thankfully, a, a lot of that research has, has already been done. Um, um, but I am sort of hoping to spend my the more experiential portion of this research out in the field with, um, with the farmers producing sort of top quality European cheese milk. Um, to understand certainly how they think about um, managing their their pastures, their hay fields, etc., um, and also sort of um, understanding better the dialogue that they have with the cheese makers that they um, to whom they provide milk, um, and sort of what those what those considerations are, um, and in the linkage I guess be- between the two. Um, I do, you know, as we talked about before, I have the opportunity to, um, to call up my, my farm manager and, and sort of discuss ruminant nutrition whenever I like, but I also um, would sort of like to see um, the, the American industry as a whole sort of like better establish that linkage um, between um, animals and and the cheese room i guess um because you know the, the ruminant diet is of course where where sort of the magic the magic of cheese begins in many ways um and i do think that you know in the in terms of the scope of my research that experiential learning also needs to be repaired with a, a strong foundation in what we already know um and so there is some some great academic work again um sort of of a very interdisciplinary nature um, related to ruminant nutrition, but also to soil health, um, plant biology, et cetera. Um, and so right now, um, well, obviously I, I won't be able to travel to Europe for the, you know, the very foreseeable future. Um, I'm, I'm working to sort of establish that foundation in, in some topics that I, I admittedly know less about. Okay. And in terms of, so you're maybe still in the planning stages or it's been hint- how did you determine the areas of Europe that you were going to study from? So uh, the Jura Valley of Switzerland, I, I saw was one and, and Emilia Romana of Italy was another. Um, I believe there was a third. But can you speak more to that, how you determined uh, the terroirs that you wanted to really study? Yeah, so I, I wanted some things that were, were um, certainly of diverse context in, in some ways. Um, and cheeses that, you know, based on sort of my knowledge of them, um, there has been a fair amount of research, understanding, and importance placed upon um, the feed systems. And so, um, you know, the Comte Producers Association, for example, has, has done an immense amount of research, perhaps, um, you know, and, and made that available um, to, to many, um, which is, you know, which is very useful. Um, from the you know, in terms of traveling to Emilia Romagna, um, I'm really curious, I, you know, in doing some reading about the production of Parmigiano Reggiano, um, I found, you know, numerous references to, um, you know, differences in flavors depending on um, the precise 
location of, of the dairy and, and the cows um, in cheese in a cheese that we sort of like imagine in many ways to be a monolith. And I think that, you know, when you talk to mongers, obviously they, you know, they often have a favorite Parmigiano. Um, and, you know, that's, that's with good reason. Um, and so I sort of want to dial that, you know, sort of walk back through that process and understand what creates um, those differences, um, obviously with the contention that at least some of that that nuance in different Parmigianos is, is rooted in the, in the farming systems and, and the diet involved. Um, and then lastly, um, my, my hope was, was and is um, to visit the Holden family in Wales. Um, I'm a, a huge fan of their Havid cheese um, and have always felt like it's a, a cheese that is sort of a perfect encapsulation of the, of the place in which it is. Um, and so it's a, both a, a place that I've, I've been fortunate enough to um, sort of visit in the past and, and have really, you know, sort of fallen for in many ways. Um, and obviously it's a cheese that I, I really love. And so I'm hoping to, to sort of go back and, and dig deeper into how that place influences that particular cheese. Um, and I, you know, hope obviously to, to sort of round out, um, you know, a, a trip to the UK by visiting some other sort of like-minded producers. I guess. Interesting. So I, from what I hear here is that maybe there's a way to start talking more, you know, from a marketing sales perspective, people have mentioned small batch lot movement, you know, uh, talking about cheeses individually based on their lots. Mm -hmm. Um, and I wonder if your information will help that more. Uh, it, it's always evolving. I feel like it gets, you know, now during this time of the pandemic, I think things are, are kind of uh, more going in bulk. But I, I think with your information, there could be added value with the, the lots and the small batch movement and, you know, to understand the diet of the cow maybe having that on the label somehow, you know, this, this. Yeah, I think that's idea. a very cool idea. Um, do you, at Arethusa, I guess you keep a log of all of this all the time, I would imagine. Is, is that how it works? We do an immense amount of record keeping. Yeah. So um, I do think that there's, um, a, you know, a great opportunity to sort of pair um, some records of different sorts together, you know, whether that's combining, um, you know, some, some logs about, about feed and diet um, more closely with um, our our own tasting notes as we we taste cheeses before they you know before they head out the door um, and drawing some some correlations between those things in the long run I think um, sort of provide a lot of sort of un, untapped potential for sure. And uh, I think I read somewhere that the Arethusa the word flower from Connecticut is that also true? Yeah, so the the Arethusa orchid um, is is an old and very rare orchid that um, was found on the property um, when the property was first established in the um, the mid 1860s, um, and so the the farm has gone through a number of sort of iterations um, since then, the current one beginning um, in in 1999. But um, that Arethusa name does date back to the the mid 19th century. Um, and the, uh, the orchid is, is still around from what I hear, if you, you know where to look. 
So, oh, so a cow is not eating an orchid. I, I assumed it no, was a no, small no. flower that they could somehow I, I, I hope not. They're, they're too, <laughs> too rare for that. Sure. Okay. All right. Okay. Never mind then. I was thinking maybe it's like barley and clover. And it's it's mixed in with the vegetal life on the Connecticut farms. Um, okay. No, <laughs> they're not going to eat that. Gotcha. Um, so I guess then in terms of, so you're making a lot of cheese now, but you're also making yogurt, butter. Um, there's an ice cream group that is going in there as well. How do you um, plan the milk? where it goes to what I, I, you know, there's, there's only so much milk from a herd of a hundred cows. That's true. And, um, you know, as, as we've grown, that has become more, more challenging at times. Um, you know, certainly, you know, our, our ice cream sales have, have gone through the roof of particularly in the last, the last few months, I think everyone needs a little, a little bit of comfort in the form of ice cream. Um, so there is some juggling to do there. Um, but you know, obviously we take a, a fairly collaborative approach and, and sort of let, let our sales dictate where we should, um, where we should siphon our milk supply, I guess. Also, I can't forget about the eggnog. Um, Egg, that's the that, that secret thing that I love. Well, not the secret <laughs> I love the eggnog. I, I buy it every year. Good stuff. Yeah. You guys make it the, the real deal. So, um, so I'm thinking, so you, right now you're going to do some research in the U S and then when everything is okay to travel, is that the plan? That is the plan. Yeah. And I, you know, I have no, no answers as to when that's going to be, nor does, nor does anyone else, I don't think. So I am uh, keeping, keeping my eyes to the, the New York Times and, and hoping somebody will tell me when it's, when it's safe to, safe to go. Oh man, Matt, you don't, you don't know when we can travel again. That's such a problem. <laughs> yeah, okay. no, I, I, I hear you. So are, do you have, um, is there a certain farm that you might reach out to in the U.S. or um, a professor of some sort in the U.S. that you might give a call to soon? Yeah, both, really. So, um, you know, I've, I've sort of been fielding um, some recommendations from from other folks in the industry who have um, sort of done done research into this topic for their own benefit, and so. Um, there are certainly um, some farms of interest, um, and you know there are also some some academics, the folks that the um, at CDR out in Wisconsin, for example, um, have been been recommended to me as a, a great resource to to dive into um, the the link between um, feed and milk quality and and ultimately cheese chemistry. Um, so there's there's a fair amount of research out there that I can. Of use as my grounding here in the in the coming months, um, and you know, thankfully, I I have the time to do that in some ways, um, such that when I actually have the opportunity to to travel and get out in the field, hopefully, I'll be able to ask more insightful and informed questions. Absolutely. Um, and do you think how far history wise do you think you'll be digging back to understand the nature of this? Like, is it is it going to be within the last 50 years or 30 years, or even way, way farther back? Um, that's a great question. I think that really I'm curious as to, you know, certainly to what folks are doing now um, and what they have done in, in fairly recent memory. Um, I do think that a lot of our sort of input intensive agriculture is very much a um, an invention of the, the 20th century um, in which we've sort of 
placed great emphasis in the dairy industry, especially in this country, um, on yield over um, quality, depending on how you how you define that. Um, certainly, there's um, there's incentives um, built into milk pricing structures for for things like cleanliness um, and for um, component amount to some degree. Um, but I think we, we need to sort of delve a little bit deeper and make sure that, you know, for example, um, those components that are winding up in our milk supply are, in fact, the ones that we um, may may find to be most useful for whatever cheeses we're, we're making at a given time. Um, and so, you know, I think it's um, understood, but often not discussed that um, milk, say, from, from different breeds or from different ruminant diet systems um, may be most appropriate for different styles of cheese. Um, and so my hope is really to inform folks enough that they could better match um, their, their farming system and their farming choices with the cheeses that they hope to make. Um, and again, I, I don't, you know, assert to be any, any expert on that yet, but um, hopefully I can dig enough into the, into the existing literature to, to help shed some light on that for, for folks who um, may have not had an opportunity to do so. Well, awesome, Matt. Uh, I want to say I'm really looking forward to uh, your findings after uh, your travels and your research in the States. Um, I think it'll be a, a game changer for all of us because you're right. I, I don't know if we've ever looked into uh, the differences of milk uh, for different cheeses like that before. Um, so thanks. Thanks for coming on Cutting the Curd and, and giving us your, your future insight. And, uh, you know, it's going to be great. Uh, I'm really looking forward to the paper. Thank you, Kara. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for awesome. having me on. Yes. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the show today. This was Cutting the Curd. You can follow us at Cutting the Curd. Uh, you can follow Matt at Matt Benham. Uh, B-E-N-H-A-M, and myself at Kara Martin. Uh, Thanks so much, and uh, eat more cheese. This episode is brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Cutting the Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 
Thanks for listening.